Welcome to the On The Way podcast, a podcast exploring a non-violent, non-dualistic, compassionate faith life. My name is Dom Faye. Joining me uh, via Zoom are Sue Grimmett from her office and Peter Cat. I assume from his office, but uh, working with the Zoom background again. Peter, what's your, your Zoom background today? My little background is a picture from Arles in the south of France, and it's the uh, hospital that Van Gogh spent some time in during one of his um, more uh, unwell times. Beautiful. I don't know if you sit down at the start of the week, Peter, and come up with your Zoom virtual backgrounds or if this is a day-by-day thing, but they are constant inspiration. I keep my, trying to keep myself inspired and remind myself that one day I will get to travel again. <laughs> yes, mm. yes. Mm. Well, uh, we're so excited about the guest we have joining us today. Uh, Barbara Brown-Taylor is a writer, speaker, ordained priest and teacher, among many other things, uh, whose voice on the spiritual dimension of the human experience has resonated with so many for, for so long now. Her books include An Altar in the World, A Geography of Faith, Learning to Walk in the Dark, Holy Envy, Finding God in the Faith of Others, and most recently, Always a Guest, Speaking of Faith Far From Home, uh, joining us from regional Georgia in uh, early evening in in the US, uh, Barbara Brown-Taylor, thank you so much for for making time for the podcast. This is the part of the pandemic I love, let me just say. To be here with you tonight, improbably, impossibly, is wonderful. Thank you. So how has that the past year been um, for you in your part of the world? I spend part of my day in lament for people who are not as naturally socially isolated as I am because I live in the country. And I spend the rest of the day amazed to have brought all my energies home for the first time in 40 years. So it's a real mixed experience as I think it is for a lot of people. Mm. Um, I read someone today who said, I finally had time over the past year. I finally had time, you know, and the reasons we had time were horrible, but that we had time was remarkable. So that's where I am. Yeah, no, it's it. We never, we never stop to be amazed here in Australia of just how different our experience has been, and and some of that that journey that we, you know, haven't gone on in a sense. I guess snapping mm-hmm. back too quickly. So, well, not too mm-hmm. quickly, but there was a desire to snap back instantly to how things were. Um, and I do wonder how the over the long journey, how different cultures will handle different insights from this time, um, and Australia. Might not mm-hmm. quite have that, but that's, um, that is a, another conversation. What we want to talk with you about today, Barbara, because your work is so rich in this area. Uh, in fact, both your latest books, Holy Envy and Always a Guest, are in different ways exploring this. It's the idea of engaging um, with expressions of faith, communities of faith, um, pra- communities of practice that are foreign to you in some way. Maybe to start with, can you um, can you share the story that you tell in Holy Envy about how you became involved in exploring different faith traditions? Ha, ha, ha. Yes. And maybe the president of the college is listening <laughs> to remember that he invited a parish priest from the local community to come teach world religions at Piedmont College in rural northeast Georgia which was the required religion course. That was 101. It was no longer introduction to the Bible or introduction to the New Testament, but um, introduction to world religions. And in, uh, I've lost the dates now. In 1997, I 
left the local church and accepted an invitation to do that. <laughs> and all of a sudden was standing in front of a classroom of young, predominantly white Southern Christian people who were knowingly or not depending on me to show them the best and not the worst of the world's other great traditions. And um, I learned as much as they did in the next couple of decades about how to do that. Never, never could use the same syllabus twice because the world changed mm -hmm. and the students changed and I changed and the headlines changed. So that's how I came to be a student of the world's other great religions. You mentioned the world changing. I guess over that journey, um, you would have had obviously 9-11 occur and, and a lot of um, hatred towards uh, particularly Muslims that occurred in the, you know, through the media and in, in the Western world. How did that shape or that time shape um, particularly the Islam part of, of what you explored? Well, hugely, because in a 15-week class, you have you know, I, I finally decided on five major world traditions, though I live in a part of the United States that's rich with Native American or first culture people. Um, so I settled on five, do the division. I mean, I had, you know, a pitiful number of weeks to cover the world's traditions. And I found out that wasn't adequate for Islam because we had to talk not only about basic teachings and texts, but we had to talk about politics and um colonialism and and um, culture and the uh, you know the effect of all of those on the practice of religion so it stretched my syllabus out of shape but I had to do it because mm. um, there was so much negative 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 press coming in and you know by the time I was finished teaching most people in my classes had only been alive as long as the U.S. had been at war in some Muslim dominant country all their lives, all yeah. their lives. So a lot to go up against. Yeah. Yeah. That's, and, and I, I suppose, especially when you consider the kind of, and I've heard you speak about this before, Barbara, but the inherent natural xenophobia that is, you know, almost biologically in each of us that, that, you know, you can see from, from the youngest age, the, the fear of difference, the fear of what is um, outside of your own tribe or, or outside of what you're used to. How difficult mm -hmm. was that initially for you? Did, did you find yourself coming up against that regularly? Well, because I was the teacher, I had an automatic reason to overcome it, you know, to go for the best instead of the worst. Um, but I, I would say there is some of that that is human. You can test a newborn infant and find ways in which that infant responds differently to different faces. And the interesting part was separating that from the enculturated part, you know, the part that was supported and enforced by headlines and stereotype and gossip and slander and social media, et cetera. So in some ways, technology became a good friend because I could teach students how to recognize different websites and what their agendas were. Mm. So, so yeah, it, uh, uh, I, I, I overcame it professionally and as a matter of course, and also of instinct because I had been a traveler before that and had admired things I'd seen, but never understood what I was seeing. Hmm. So being a teacher forced me to stay at least six weeks ahead of the students, right? <laughs> In terms of recognizing some of that. 
It, it is interesting. You speak about, you know, some websites that students might have gone to for information. Oh. And I, uh, working at a school at the moment, I share an office um, with a, the, the person who runs the religious education department. And they, in their world religions unit, she can't believe year after year, no matter what they teach, assignments mm-hmm. will come in, which will say some horrific things that, you know, most people in that religion probably don't hold to or or mm-hmm. it's very interesting, you know, what what the dominant views, whether it's through websites people go to or movies they've seen, people already hold a whole lot of baggage about different religious traditions. How much did you have to name and label that early on with students? You know, who would have thought that in a college class on world religions, vetting websites would become a part of the curriculum. Is that not crazy? Yeah. But it's evaluating your news sources. Where where do they come from? And critical thinking is the buzzword in undergraduate education, but it's it's very important to engage your reason and see who is telling you the story. Mm-hmm. And one of the hardest things I had to do was teach students, especially when we got to Christianity, that there were various stories about how their religion had begun and I could acquaint them with those stories, but I couldn't choose between those stories for them. Was it a Roman imperial conspiracy or was it the activity of the Holy Spirit? You know, mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> and, and, and it was my responsibility to review the dominant stories and then say, it's up to you now to decide where you'll stake, you know, your commitment, if this is your commitment, but um as I said, I wrote Holy Envy because I learned so much being a teacher. Mm. Yeah, and there's a beautiful phrase you know, that you use when, when you talk about that initial branching out into different traditions and maybe realizing that your viewpoint is just a viewpoint among many. Or um, yeah, you, you write about, you describe it as existential dizziness, which is just a beautiful <laughs> Beautiful phrase. And I, I actually, I have this vivid memory as a Baptist pastor's son growing up. Um, I would have been about probably eight or nine years old and we were driving home one day um, from, from church and we drove past the, the mosque that was on our way home. And it I, in this sort of moment, I remember realizing that they thought they were right just as much as we thought we were right. And... <laughs> And I thought, well, on, on what basis do I know that we're the right ones and they're not? What if what if they're the right ones? Which I suppose is how religion is given to many people, that there is exclusive truth. But that existential dizziness, you know, that was my first memory of existential dizziness about, mm. oh my gosh, what if I what if what if I'm wrong or what if there's bigger than what I know? How mm. did you how did you gently help your students through the existential dizziness? Mm. I excuse myself sometimes by saying that 15 weeks was not enough time. But one of the good ideas that came to me was to make one of their possible assignments to interview someone of another tradition. And honest to goodness, it could be an Anglican and a Mormon. It could be a Baptist and a Presbyterian or a Christian and a Muslim, but have them interview someone of another tradition. But I assign the first three questions, which are, what do you love about your faith? You know, what's a favorite story from your faith and what do people most often get wrong about your faith? And that in some ways accentuated the existential dizziness and also softened it because they heard a real human being, you know, talking back to them from another place in a way that was affable and not threatening. So, uh, but I'm still not over it, Dom, if you are good for you. (laughs) (laughs) 
They're, they're great questions, though. I actually, I don't know if you know Peter Rollins' work, but he had a thing in um, Icon. It was part of Icon, I think, that called the Evangelism Project or the Evangelization Project, where it wasn't actually about going and evangelizing others. It was about allowing them to evangelize you. And some mm. of those questions that you raise are actually um, some of the ones that he had used too, you know, that like actually asking people what they actually really love about their faith, the idea that when someone is is different, even slightly different, you lean in and find out where um, the joy is for them and what why they're there. You know, mm-hmm. and the the more you lean in, I guess you know the less the less they become the other, and hopefully that might reduce some of the existential dizziness, as you say. Well, perhaps mm-hmm. increasing it in other ways, but just being human together. Um, and drawing that gap across. Uh, so I'd love to, I think I'm actually going to take those questions of yours in my own community because we were talking about trying to do something similar here with little groups of people yeah. going and being um, evangelised by others, say, to mm-hmm. say, you know, what what is it? And those those are gold questions. Yeah, that's, mm. it's brilliant. It's brilliant. And it's interesting because there is so, um, anyone who has explored different traditions, whether through travelling or through a friend, you know, seeing another, I guess, another viewpoint, another element of the human spiritual expression is so beautiful and life-giving when you allow it to be. But these exclusive truth claims can make it a scary place for many people, I guess, of faith mm-hmm. to go. I, I know um, I've, I've heard you a bit talk about John fourteen six, um, Barbara, mm-hmm. and that, that idea that Jesus saying, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Which has become, you know, the verse that people will use to Christian or some Christians use to say, well, no, there we can't look at different traditions. There isn't any life in them. This is the only way. What, what, mm-hmm. how, how do you work with that that verse, that approach from some Christians? The predominant way I have worked with it is to wonder out loud why we use one verse to read an entire tradition mm-hmm. instead of reading you know, instead of reversing, turning the binoculars around. So it helped me a lot to stay in the gospel of John and go to another earlier verse where Jesus says, he who believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. That's pretty big in the same gospel, you know, to ponder why we know John 14, six, but we don't know the earlier verse. And my answer was because the later verse makes me right. (laughs) And it's been interpreted in ways that put me on top. And the earlier verse puts me into a mystery of, of wondering about the one who sends instead of, you know, the one who is named as the sent. So, um, but I I don't get very far with that if it's argumentative, you know, I, Mm. I only get anywhere with that if it's in a spirit of genuine curiosity about why we privilege the verses we do in whatever our tradition is, right? Why do we privilege the verses we do and why do we ignore the verses we do? So that becomes to me the interesting peace. And especially, you know, in my tradition with certain kinds of Christians, because I don't get to talk to every single kind there is, but to talk about, you know, how we interpret scripture and why, and how we learned to do it that way. And I love curious people so much more than certain people. Mm. I just love curious people. Yeah. It's also helpful that, um, you know, John, the writer of John gives us the f- first chapter, which is like sort of the, 
the um, the handbook for reading the rest of the gospel, and <laughs> and you know, and it's a bit that I often gets skipped because it's you know theological philosophical language. But, yeah, right up front in the prologue, the writer of John says that you know, Jesus is the the light that in, it enlightens everyone. Mm-hmm. So you know, if you read if you read um, I am the way, the truth, and the life through that lens of of this universal idea of Jesus, and so anyone who's enlightened and um, is on a path to sort of towards the Father in inverted commas. Uh, is is um, in touch with this universal cosmic Christ, and mm-hmm. you know, that has really helped me, um, particularly when I've been to um, Buddhist temples in places like Japan and Hindu temples in Singapore, where I can see people are absolutely enraptured by the experience, um, which is what draws me to worship. It's the sense of being drawn out of oneself towards something else. Mm-hmm. And you know, so I think, you know, for me, John's gospel is a universalist gospel. And as you say, reading one verse completely out of context, um, I think just completely misreads it. And in my, in, it's actually the mirror of what we of what many people think it is. It's actually saying, "Wow, this here is this human experience that is open to everyone, and there's a whole lot of paths that actually." are consistent with that understanding of being illuminated. Oh, I love that. Can you imagine if we used multiple languages in that? So sure. Jesus would say, I am the Tao. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. You know, I, I am, you know, and I have to yeah. go through my languages to get the other words. But yeah. what if he were saying, I am all of this, you yeah. know, and log- logos in that introduction you talk about, I don't know how geeky I can get here, but, <laughs> you know, it was amazing to go into the history of logos last time I had to address that passage and realize logos is the way the divine, unnameable, infinite comes to human beings. Yeah. And that has been Torah, that even in the Abrahamic traditions, that has been Torah and Sophia and yeah. uh, Quran and Hadith. Yeah. And, you know, it, the Logos has taken so many names. Exactly right. No, I think that's brilliant. I was listening to some theologian, I can't, I can't remember who it was, a couple of weeks ago, who said that they've actually got to the point where they refuse to translate the word Logos mm. into word because it actually takes it from mm. what it is to something it isn't. And whilst it, it is a literal, in one sense, it's a literal translation, it's also very reductionist. Mm. And this person said, we have, sometimes we just have to learn a new word and hold that word because it actually means something completely different and new. Mm. I love that idea of you know, Logos being the Tao. And all, I think that, I think that is right on the money in terms of what, the writer of John uh, had seen in the Jesus story. Mm. Mm. Yeah, one of my one of my favorite parts of the book, Barbara. Perhaps looking at the that the you know that verse because I want to get onto the the idea of being a universalist a little bit later on because I know that is a very it's a word that's often used as an insult in uh, in the parts <laughs> of the tradition. So I do want to explore that in a little more depth. But one uh, one part of the book that I uh, really loved was when you were you were exploring the idea of I, I suppose people who, um, for their own reasons, connect with religion out of a desire for an exclusive truth claim, 
And um, you write about a preacher who, uh, and I'm quoting from the book here, must have suggested that the Christian way was one among many ways to God because afterward a man came up to her and said, if God isn't partial to Christianity, then what am I doing here? You go on to write, I wish ordinary Christians took exams so I could put that question on the final. As natural as it may be to want to play on the winning team, the wish to secure divine favoritism strikes me as the worst possible reason to practice any religion. If the man who asked that question could not think of a dozen better reasons to be a Christian than that, indeed, what was he doing there? (laughs) Beautiful, beautiful language. But but what I wanted to ask you after reading that was that I'm sure in your students every year, and I'm sure in the conversations you've had, that you you came across people who, for for a whole host of very human reasons, had come to attach to their religion out of a desire for exclusive truth and divine favoritism, and and couldn't couldn't see beyond that, couldn't move through that. Did, were there were there messy relationships and messy conversations, or? Or did you find a way to embrace them in that, that journey as well? That was one of the earliest teachings I got from students was coming in with my own superiority, right? That my understanding of the broadness of the view was the best way. <laughs> mm. And I met a young woman who finally came to my study and we closed the door. And I found out that her attachment to Jesus was not at all about divine favoritism. It was about survival. It was about keeping her head above water after her mother had married a variety of men who came into her bedroom late at night, you know, and did dreadful things. And when she came to Christ, it was her, it was her cushion in the the stormy waves. So she was the first one to shut my mouth and to pay attention to all the different reasons why people clung to the truth they did and, and to be more humble myself in terms of how I taught and graded papers and designed quizzes so that I began to introduce classes saying, I am not about changing your mind about anything, but I would love you to ask better questions Mm. about, you know, why you've given your life the way you have. So, uh, so that was where we met because I had to question that every day (laughs) I taught class. So that's where we met, but yeah, I got a lot of lessons from students about what I had read as divine favoritism was about many other things as well. And for some, it was, just staying alive yeah wow that that's so powerful to think about because you know i i've i've said i've shared this story on the podcast before but early on when i started exploring this tradition i remember being enraptured by this idea of non-dualism um you know Mm -hmm. not holding anything as right as opposed to others being wrong but looking for where the life is emerging everywhere and it was so life-giving and liberating and then I realized, uh, you know, maybe six months in that I had just become quite dualistic about my non-dualism. I had become quite certain <laughs> that not, not thinking that you're right is the right response in a, yeah. in a weird kind of way. And so you're right, there, there's that beautiful humanity and, um, you know, I, I don't remember who it is you quote in the book, but, but so, I remember you quote someone who, who is talking about 
before people engage with religion, it would be handy to have therapy and psychology and understand the ways humans gather together and why we look for religion and, and Mm -hmm. what is behind all of this. Because, you know, in, in each of our stories, I suppose there is, um, there's a reason why we're asking these questions and why we're, we're on this path and, um, and other, other people's reasons sometimes aren't entirely clear, are they? No, no. Every time someone says to me, I have faith, I say, you have, that's an incomplete sentence. You have faith that what, that what will happen, that what will not happen. You have faith, what finish the sentence. Mm. And, and it's quite, you know, the first time I asked myself that the answer doesn't stay the same, but yeah, it's uh, yeah. To recognize our own, what, Yeah. put the word on it, our own domination, our own wish to dominate, you know, the conversation because we've finally seen the light. Right. (laughs) So evangelists come in all kinds of clothing and, and it's a helpful thing to know that. Yeah. But maybe, maybe a, a question worth exploring and it's, it's, maybe the the question in this conversation and i'm interested to know what how you would uh, explore it barbara if someone asked you what is religion what would mm. you what would you say to that well i'm afraid i'm going to give you the classroom answer but i i, I tried to talk about religion and it's not clear where the word comes from but religamenting is at least one possibility which is reconnecting that which has become sundered for some reason or another and in every tradition i could take a look at the religamenting had to do with reconnecting the human and and that which transcends the human and because we're talking about non-dualism, I want to add more categories than that. But the the re-ligamenting is, is um, key to me. And I'm also aware that most religious traditions either began in conflict and near uh, annihilation, at least in the Abrahamic traditions, or they began with the pon- pondering of death, the end of life. What happens? Where did they go? You can see that in the Christian scriptures, you know, Paul's telling people, Jesus is telling people this generation won't pass away. And then they did. And so people are saying to Paul, but what about the ones who've gone on? You know, so it's often about what happens next. And so religion to me is about trying to answer the unanswerable questions and finding a community who will wonder about that with you. And if you're unfortunate, it will be gathering with a community who is certain about what happens to you. <laughs> yeah, yes. Yeah. And, and I know you, you do, you speak about the different traditions and you use this you know, great Richard Rohr quote that some people might've heard um, about oh. yeah, how all humanity is pointing towards the moon and just arguing about who has the best finger, um, <laughs> which I suppose that that does express the you know that and and i find this working at a school with with young people at the moment that um you know i, I recently gathered them all in the room my my year 12s at the school and there was about 80 of them and and in in four groups and i asked them all to just write down on a piece of paper anonymously a big question they had about life they were only there for 30 minutes at a time it wasn't like this is at the mm. end of a camp or anything and there were four joke responses and 76 deep probing questions and this is in a place that if you look at the data and you have the conversations at the school people will tell you well the student base isn't um overtly religious it's you know this isn't really where the school is in terms of its its student body like culture in australia is is too 
But I had 76 questions there that proved, well, there's a universal humanity. There's a universal ache, a universal, what do I do with all of this? You know, questions like one person said, um, what's it like to close your eyes for the last time? You know, mm. <laughs> and one, one student's question was, uh, how am I ever going to forgive the person who's hurt me the most? And I just thought as I was reading these questions, it gave me, I felt the heaviness of them, but then I, it gave me hope that yes, there's this idea that religion is dying in the world, but, but the, that human, um, that human ache is, it's, it is universal, isn't it? Well, see, it is. And this goes back to, you say we would get to universalism sooner or later, yeah, let's but get there now. <laughs> I mean, well, because we're playing with plastic language, it, in exactly your situation, I began to see that you could talk about universalism or humanism or the ways in which religions are invented to help people access their deepest humanity, their mm. deepest, best way of being human. Mm. And if a religion doesn't do that, yeah, i.e. now I'm going to take a big leap. If a religion cannot transcend itself and help its followers get beyond the religion to what is most deeply human in us, yes. then the religion has let us down. And so, you know, universalism, you're right. You, you know, uniquely condemned. I'm so happy these days. I'm not called a pagan quite as often or a new <laughs> ager or whatever, you know, now maybe universalist is the worst thing people can say, but, but Christian humanism has a long and venerable history, I think. And so does Buddhist humanism and, and Muslim humanism. And, you know, there are ways in which there are plenty of us meeting at the borders of our traditions, realizing that that's where our religions were meant to get us, mm. was into the vicinity of the neighbor, you know, where we could make the world safer for our children and, and heal, you know, heal the world in some way. The Jewish notion of tikkun olam, of healing the world. So, so that's what I found at the heart of these traditions was a way in which they transcended themselves to deliver us to each other. Wow. It's beautiful. That's and, and I think it, it, it ties in nicely with Dietrich Bonhoeffer's idea of religionless Christianity as well, and mm -hmm. ties in with the idea of that um, Brian McLaren, when we were talking to him, when he's talking about different stages of faith, um, you know, that sense that we may start off saying, well, what does this mean? Does this help me to understand what happens when I die? You know, what about the rules? But ultimately, it gets us to the question of uh, how do we live as if God were not? You know, how, how what, is, what is a way that we're not doing this for some uh, ultimate eternal reward or avoiding eternal damnation? What if we're mm. not doing it for those reasons? And what if we could actually live this way? Um, we live with without God, you know, mm. sort of that, that would actually lead us to our greatest human expression. Mm. Um, yet paradoxically, I think that's also when we find that transcendent God most fully. Mm, mm, mm. Yeah. It feels transgressive to me, but I, I have an altar that I visit, you know, to give thanks and to do all the other things people do at altars, but it has been feeling very daring to me lately. And Sue, this speaks, I think, to what you said, where I, for instance, honor Mary. And then I think about the ways in which I got to be her today. And then I honor the source of life. And I, and I think of the ways in which I got to be a source today. And I honor Jesus, the Lord, the 
the teacher and the ways in which I got to embody that today. And that's scary to me right now, but it's, I think it goes to what you said. What if we were, what if it's, what if it's up to us, Hmm. you know, to embody these things we bow before? Wow. (laughs) Yes. And I I think, so speaking of the idea that, that only when you live as if God were not is when you find the transcendent, I think about the, you know, that's all through Jesus's language about you must lose your life to gain it in a sense. There's this, this, you know, you got to loosen your grip before you're going to breathe. You, you kind of have to stop trying to hold the thing so tight. Other, otherwise, you're never going to be able to, to, to find it. It's just, it's such a, it's one of the many paradoxes, um, I guess, of this, this creation. Barbara, do you find that in, in their own individual ways, in all the traditions you've looked at, did you keep finding that people who maybe entered a, a religion to use McLaren's idea of, of, you know, the, the stages of faith development would enter religion, maybe holding it in a certain way, but as they journeyed through the tradition, as they went on, their, their grip loosened and maybe their, their heart filled up. See, now you're going to make me talk about how old I am, but I have noticed that (laughs) I have noticed that the longer I have practiced this faith, um, how it has changed on me, you know, and the ways in which, um, I don't think there's like stages one through five, you know, and fives are better than ones. As I've already said, I had students who corrected me on that, but, but I have found ways in which in troubling ways, I have interiorized the teachings so that I'm not dependent on the same outside things I was once dependent on. And that makes me feel unfaithful to those things. <laughs> I could name, you know, Christian community and regular Sunday worship and preparing sermons and living by the church calendar and things that I lived by and that I'm still very aware of, but they are not my, they're not the, the pins to my map anymore. So, but, but that I, I do associate that with age. I really do, you know, where things run out. I have an email I haven't answered yet right now from a pastor who's become very ill and said, I'm experiencing the absence of God in a new and frightening way. And I don't know what it's about. And I don't know quite what, uh, as far as I've gotten, is like, oh, you need to read St. John of the Cross, but I don't think that'll be helpful right now. But, you know, there's a way in which there's an emptying, there's an emptying that goes on that that is that's incredibly necessary and real and there are times i'd like to give it back it, it really is that garden of gethsemane kind of moment it's it's comforting when mm-hmm. the the man we look at sort of as the the model of the tradition in a sense mm-hmm. went through that emptying and um and went through that that moment on the cross of saying my god my god why have you forsaken me because it, it mm-hmm. even it even allows that you know, to, mm. it shows that that is the journey. That isn't, you haven't wandered off. You haven't missed the journey. That is the journey. Mm. See, uh, and I, that's why I love Mark and Matthew's gospels. Yet I do know Christians who say he experienced that. So I don't have to. Yeah. Yeah, sure. That's a nice thought. Oh, gosh. Yeah, look, if, if that if that exists, you might find some people signing up for that sort of religion. You probably do, I suppose. Um, Barbara, I'd like to hear a few, if, if you're, you have some that you can share, specific instances of this holy envy that you write about. I know that um, the, the framing of the holy envy book 
is uh, Krista Stendhal's three questions to ask when approaching another religion. The first one, um, when trying to understand another religion, you should ask the adherents of the religion and not its enemies. Number two, don't compare your best to their worst. And number three, leave room for holy envy, which are beautiful, beautiful questions. I'm just curious in your life as you've explored different traditions, can you share a few stories of what has evoked a sense of holy envy in you? I can, though. The correct author's answer is, well, you must read my book. <laughs> <laughs> so, but I, you know, I have thought about that often because Houston Smith, sort of grandfather of world religions, I never met him in person, but he went through the same five traditions that most people in my position teach because there's no time, you know, to do much more in a semester. But um, from, I think from Buddhism to start there, I, I really explored what we've been talking about, which is the absence of a divine one, right? The, the absence of a divine savior, a divine mediator, you know, but a tradition in which reality is your savior, if you will accept it in all of its limits and suffering. Um, from, from Hinduism, I adored the idea there was more than one way to God, that there was a devotional way, and there was an action way and there was a contemplative way you know that there were different ways to be on your way to god because in christianity the devotional way was the only way i'd ever been offered um, from islam the idea of committed prayer five times daily prayer and depending on the branch of islam the idea that five times a day you became as clean and pure as the day you were born and got a whole other chance to live until your next prayers um, floored me. And the idea of communal prayer, where I didn't get to go to the back pew in the church and be by myself, but I stood in a line toe to toe with other people, and we bowed in unison. Um, Judaism, the whole idea of sacred debate, that when you argue about scripture and your interpretation of scripture, you are passionately engaged with each other, talking about what matters the most. And if you're yelling, all the better because <laughs> it, it means you really care and you are out to learn from each other. Um, and then from Christianity, I just go back and back again, not to John uh, 14.6, but to the Sermon on the Mount and the impossible asks that Jesus asks in that sermon, either in Matthew or in Luke, but just the impossible Zen of those requests for right living of what it means to be in right relationship with God and neighbor. So that, you know, for many other reasons is why I go to bed um, in my tradition at, at night and have not gone anywhere else. Cause I can't get past love God and your neighbors yourself. Good grief. I can't even get to the sermon on the Mount. I'm just sort of stuck on that one. <laughs> yeah. Wow. It, it, it's, it is um, beautiful to, uh, I suppose when you're in this space, when you, you move through the need to, you know, for whatever reason it might be, exclusively hold the truth of, of one tradition and see the the beauty and the color and the diversity of, um, you know, that exists. One thing that, that um, you write at the very end of the book, Barbara, which I have to say to me feels superhuman, I cannot quite comprehend ever doing this, is you even write about the holy envy that you have felt in different parts of the Christian tradition 
And there's one particular story that one particular line where you talk about going to a, a Pentecostal mega church and having a mm. sense of holy envy for their car park hospitality. <laughs> it's such a beautiful way to approach the world. Uh, and I, I, I know that by how rarely I feel I have ever done that, how much I, I notice in myself the traditions or the expressions that I believe I, you know, I believe they're not helpful. I believe they're not wrong. It's quite fun to talk about maybe the ways that they haven't been helpful. And, mm. and the thing is, obviously that never really gets you anywhere. That doesn't really serve the soul, but to, 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 <laughs> to approach it with this sense of, um, oh gosh, of, of going into the traditions that we sometimes have struggled with the most and finding something even there to feel holy envy for. That's mm. a beautiful way to, to experience the world. How hard has it been for you to, is, is that, does that come naturally to you? Oh, gosh, no. Would I have bothered with a book? No. And I had plenty of other reactions to that church, but they were really nice in the elevator too, Dom. Really nice. <laughs> so, you know, it, but it, but it did, because um, where I live, gosh, mega churches are almost the norm. And so it became important for me to quit sort of defining, you know, my Episcopal here, we call it tradition as the faithful bonsai minority and to realize those folks were not getting thousands of people every Sunday unless they were delivering something that had life in it. And so to trust the Holy Spirit enough to, to investigate what that might be, no, that was a, a spiritual discipline and it was good for me. It really was good for me. I actually think it's hardest um, with our own other traditions within the Christian faith. Um, oh yeah. Because it's, it's the neighbors, the near neighbors that annoy you so much. Like you can go across <laughs> to other faiths and you, you won't, it won't hit the irritant button at all or the outrage button or the despair button, but you go into other denominations or ones that are just a degree different from us. And uh -huh. uh, they're the ones that evokes all that strong reaction, which, and it's actually true on a world stage too, isn't it? In terms of conflict that so often the, the worst and the bloodiest conflicts break out between neighbors who are quite similar, but not quite. And exactly. Anyway, it's it's those that are, look a bit like us. And so I think if we're going to talk seriously about the way of Jesus in peace and love and forgiveness, mm -hmm. uh, then we have to look at those groups that really um, cause us the, the most angst and that we think we are most free to, to, if not hate, at least to write off sometimes. Mm -hmm. And they're the ones that we need to find ways to, you know, find, find whether it's the, the, their um, car park hospitality or whatever that is. And to maybe try it. And this is, I'm, I'm talking about this because this is my personal um, discipline. I'm trying to start with a couple of groups, even within the Anglican church that I know <laughs> it is my tendency <laughs> to write off. Um, so I am actually speaking to myself. So trying to find ways that we can look at them and, and say, what, um, what is that gift of God that I see in you that maybe I could benefit from? Mm. See, and what you just said is the way I read the New Testament. You know, Jesus is horrible in a couple of chapters of John and Matthew, but guess what? It's in his faith community. That's I mean, true. these are the nearest neighbors. He's arguing with the people who raised him. He's arguing in the synagogue where he happens to be, duh, he's there, you know, worshiping in community. And that's where I think, you know, it, the minute that Christianity became predominantly Gentile, we lost that. And we, 
forgot that was an argument within close boundaries of uh, uh, people of faith. Actually, not close boundaries because there were probably four, you know, dominant Judaisms in his day. But anyhow, what you just said is so true, and it's true not only of Christians, though. Guess what? Because we're the largest still numerically tradition in the world, I think we have. Wouldn't you figure? more divisions than any other <laughs> uh, tradition in the world. But I, I taught one class with graduate students and one had gone to the University Chapel Methodist School and had had a heartfelt conversation with another Buddhist. She was Christian and she came back to class and reported on how they had had this heartfelt conversation. And a Korean student in the class who knew a lot about Buddhism in Korea said, well, you know, they were a heretic. Don't, I mean, you know what sect they came from, don't you? That you were talking to a heretic <laughs> and you go, Oh, Buddhists have it too. <laughs> it's kind of reassuring actually. <laughs> oh gosh. But isn't it, it's in the same moment, humiliating and uh, freeing to recognize uh -huh. that that human tendency to, to think of the ones that you think you're smarter than better than, You've got it more <laughs> right then. And and to realize that that maybe in some capacity that's just the human condition and, and while the spiritual tradition at its best and you know can move us through it, you know, mm -hmm. on, on the better days, you are never gonna transcend the part of yourself that in some form is going to attach to whatever you do think or believe as mm -hmm. in some way better than others. See? And that, so now let's go back to the universal virtue of human egotism and bigotry, right? So yeah. what, or whatever that is, but you're, um, you're right about that. And what I love about the major traditions is at least the texts I know somewhat all make room for those who don't belong to the tradition. You know, they've, they've got a, they've got a, a an inclusion kind of theme for those who don't belong and, and, and some self-critique built in for the pious or the self-righteous or the this or the that. And it's the only thing that I worry about with students who have no grounding in those major traditions is I hope they don't get caught up in unmitigated egotism about their views because, you know, one of the virtues of an old religion is it knows about that. It knows human beings do that. Yeah. Yeah. A uh, beautiful quote of yours in the book, Barbara, you write that the only clear line I draw these days is this, when my religion tries to come between me and my neighbor, I will choose my neighbor. Jesus never commanded me to love my religion, which is uh, just, it should be foundational, um, you know, sort of the, that, that, that should be in the weekly liturgy, that, that reminder, because I do yeah. think, um, you know, that there, there, there is this sense to like, I can even think right now, I could probably list five names pretty instantly of people who I have resisted acting, not necessarily acted in a hostile way to, but resisted mm. reaching out to with warmth and generosity mm. and love simply mm. because I struggle with what they practice or the faith community they're a part of. And because some part of me egotistically does believe that, that they have missed the mark and quite likes to I, I suppose think of myself as one who is closer to the mark. There is a part of me that likes to think of myself that way. So it mm. is, it's really, again, it's humiliating and so liberating to think, yes, Jesus mm. never commanded you to, to, to love your thoughts about, you know, <laughs> the world and to, to love your religion, just to love your, your neighbor. It's 
be- it's such a beautiful simplifying way to to approach it. Gosh, and if it works on everybody the way it works on you, how amazing one could say what you just said, you see? Because if that short combination of those commands helps us wake up to the ways in which we don't do it, how lovely is that? I mean, just the the humility in what you said. I mean, anybody who could say what you just said. Oh. So there, I just made you better than everybody who can't say what you just said. I uh, will carry that uh, that ego boost into the day, Bob. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> lovely. How deeply schooled we are in um, binary thinking. Oh man! We mm. just immediately go to me versus the other. We just can't help ourselves but think in binary terms about right. Mm-hmm. You know, we're always looking for right and wrong. Um, mm-hmm. We we look for me versus someone else, or I am not. You know that person is not in relationship with me, which is an absolute uh, furphy. Mm. Uh, until we name, constantly name how in the Western tradition particularly we have been schooled in the idea that the whole of reality is set up as a, as binaries and there are hierarchies in the binaries. It's all sort of Derrida stuff that um, we just have to keep naming it and exposing ourselves as, as binary thinkers mm-hmm. and just constantly doing what Don's doing and saying, wow, how do I how do I break down this binary that I've just, I have assumed is part of the way the world's set up. Mm -hmm. Mm. It's one thing I kind of love about where we are right now with inner spirituality, which is neither here nor there um, with sexuality, human sexuality. I just passed a church in Atlanta, Georgia that said trans neighbors are welcome here. And I thought trans is neither here nor there. It's in between it's trans. And, you know, I think there is, there is some wake up going on right now about how the binary at least stakes out this and that, but guess what? If I want to go from East to West and I keep going, I'm going to be right back to East again. So it's it, the only good thing about binaries is I keep asking myself and what's in the middle mm. and what's on the way. And Gregory of Dissa invites us to understand that um, mm. the fact that we have a Trinitarian God means that all binaries are false. Mm-hmm. Mm. And to use my words, he refers to the Holy Spirit as the queering principle of God. I love that. Yeah. That it's so helpful as well because it's it's recognizing, um, you know that, that these are the reasons that people the, the struggle with this binary nature that so many people have woken up to over the journey of humanity is one of the many reasons that people need the some form of religious tradition, some form of spiritual expression to liberate themselves from it. To think, oh, I I, I have seen the ways in which I am broken. I have seen the ways in which my ego can run the show. I have seen the ways in which all this can happen. So how about we gather together and share stories about this and see what people have said about it for thousands of years of history. It's, um, yeah, it's remarkable that the very thing that sometimes people cling to religion for is the very thing that religion was maybe there or has existed to save them from. Mm, isn't that something? Yeah, that's one of my arguments for religion is I get out of my own generation, my own context, my own nationality. I I talk to Gregory of Nyssa and I hear from a 
a person in my tradition who lives in a whole other part of the world and doesn't see Jesus the way I do at all. And he uses liberation instead of salvation and on and on and on. But, you know, religion is like the treasure box of the millennia. Yeah, yeah. I I couldn't agree more. And I think we haven't brought enough of those treasures out um, Mm. that 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 can really serve humanity well at the moment. And I know, Barbara, you've talked in also about the the practice versus belief in in religion and, and Christianity has leaned towards if that was a continuum Christianity has leaned towards the belief end and mm-hmm. so one of those treasures I think we are discovering and rediscovering at the moment is all of the practices um, mm-hmm. that that can uh, that are transformative to us and that the you know it, it goes with uh, just like with people lean in you start to understand more and yeah. it changes you with religion the same thing lean in go deeper and allow those practices and be regular you know allow that to transform you and uh you you, you begin to see something entirely new um the more you look yeah mm, it'll change your beliefs <laughs> well, yes yes that is actually something i i wanted to to explore because the question after all of you know exploring the different traditions through this podcast and that the exclusive truth claims aren't necessarily helpful in the the path forward. People might say then, well, why why Christianity? Christianity? They might ask the question of that man um, in the church, in the, the story that you wrote about that we shared a bit earlier. And I, I remember, um, I remember 2018 actually. Sue and I were on a drive back from Byron Bay. We'd just been down there recording an episode with Matt Haig um, a couple of years ago, which you can go and find in the podcast archives. But it's about a two-hour drive back, and and I was asking you this, Sue, about, you know, from your life experience, from when you realize that you don't, if you don't have to be a part of anything, you know, if you don't, if it doesn't, if there's no correct way necessarily that is one exclusive correct way, why Anglican? Why Christian? Why would you become a priest? And you introduced me to the idea that to know any truth you to know any tradition you have to go deep in one um why why do you think this is true barbara why do you think it's true and and sue as well why do you think it's true that to know any any tradition you have to go deep in one what is it that that gives you you know i even have to question that statement of mine but but what i noticed teaching college is you couldn't major in everything the idea was you majored in something to learn the disciplines, the language, the practices of that that discipline, and that would enable you to understand the disciplines of others better. Or we could go to linguistics. You know, the more accomplished I am at English, perhaps the better equipped I am to understand the subtleties and the things I can't reach mm. in in Arabic or German or or Japanese. So I still argue that. But I I do know more and more people who are in my Christian language who are following the lead of the Holy Spirit and they don't know where it's going. And they're almost like, you know, the early pioneers of any tradition who are maybe bouncing off an old one, you know, leaving an old one, not wanting to be part of an old one. And there's something leading them into an unmapped territory. So I, I also have high regard for that. But because of my own experience, I do think it's helpful to know a language, know a discipline, and that that will equip me better to understand other languages and disciplines. But that's mm-hmm. arguable. 
Yeah, I'd, I'd, I agree. I'd say also that it's only as you are practicing within a tradition that you have a chance to actually say, is this making a difference in my life? You know, mm -hmm. what I always talk about my faith, actually, the, the firmest grounding of my faith is from experience, because mm -hmm. it's actually, you know, hearing the words of Jesus, looking at the way of Jesus, having a bash, you know, in my own um feeble manner to try to put it into practice and actually recognizing the life that flows out of that and recognizing mm -hmm. where it um, multiplies into something more abundant and go, Oh, look, <laughs> look at the difference that made. So I guess, <laughs> you know, you have to actually um, have given it a go, <laughs> you know, to, to, to have that foundation of experience in your own life. And that's the, one of the other benefits of getting older is that you start to also say, well, these are the things that are a firm foundation. These are uh, my touchstones. These are the, the lights that guide my path. Mm, yeah. True. I'm waiting for another assignment to preach on Jesus telling his disciples that if they had the faith of a mustard seed, they could move mountains because my idea is then they tried to move a mountain and couldn't. And he said, see, I mean, give it up guys. Come on. Let's <laughs> yeah, I think that's right. It was an egotistical little try. I think. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's brilliant. You, you know, it's, it's interesting. Um, I, you know, and the idea of leaning deep into one, one thing I do remember vividly, um, a conversation with someone I was studying at university with, uh, in my first year out of school and Christianity came up there in a group assignment with me and they just, I don't know how we got under religion. It wasn't a religious subject, but Christianity came up and they said, I remembered the day that I stopped believing that and mm -hmm. it was the best day of my life because I didn't have to do it anymore. I could leave. Mm -hmm. And that probably mm -hmm. says a lot about, you know, what they'd been raised in. But I mm -hmm. do think when you when your whole understanding of relating to religion has been exclusive truth claims, um, mm -hmm. when that breaks, there is a sense of, oh, I don't have to do this anymore then. If this, mm -hmm. if this isn't exclusive truth, I don't have to do it anymore. And it's mm -hmm. at that moment where people lean out, whereas that's, you know, that's almost the pivotal, that's the, the intersection, that's the juncture of, of, you know, leaning in can actually mm. guide you further, I guess. But it's just, I suppose I'm just asking that, that it feels like the world on whole, or at least the Western world has largely rejected religion for those reasons, because they view it as exclusive truth. They seem disinterested in exclusive truth. And so they've mm. all leaned out. D do you, what, what are you seeing, Barbara, that, that makes, that gives you hope that people are maybe starting to lean back in again? Hmm. Oh, here's a really, well, first of all, you remind me, I wish I could attribute it correctly, but someone's regular response when people said they didn't believe in God anymore would say, tell me about the God you don't believe in. That's a brilliant question. So, um, but I also, I, where I live, people are, see, Anglicans have not been big on exclusive truth claims so much. I can hear it in the liturgy in ways that hurt me, hurt me still. And, and yet where I live, it's the boundaries. It's the boundaries placed on everything from gender expectations to the ways in which one is and is not allowed to experience God. And so it's not the exclusivity as much as it is the limits placed on the way the divine will appear and act and speak and guide and breathe that has uh, tired some people out to the point they're leaning away. But I am loving um, younger people 
whether it's 10 years, 20, 30, 40 years younger than I am, and just listening to them about what gives you life, what's saving your life now, taking the religious um, italics out of it and just asking people like your students, like Mm. the, I wrote it down, what you just said, you said 76 (laughs) of them had profound questions and I'll never tire of hearing what those are. Yeah. And how they keep people awake at night and how they search for answers. And uh, if religion could be anywhere, not I, whatever the word is, could be there. Yeah. And you are there. Dom, you started this conversation <laughs> by telling me why you're hosting this conversation, you know, and the ways in which um, our conversation partners here played a part in that. So there you have it. Yeah. Somebody spoke in unexpected ways to you and 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 you were tuned yeah yeah it, it, it's it's remarkable to to sometimes stop back and realize that the we're not it's not like it's coming one day we're doing this stuff right now and um <laughs> I, I do know that there is this I, I think it is human nature to think well we're going to get there one day we're building the blocks now but sometimes it's helpful to sit back and go actually no we're doing the dance this is this, this is, is the it. thing. This is the thing. That's beautiful. Well, Barbara, we, we need to let you go to, to have a meal. I think you haven't had dinner yet, so we'll let you go and, and cook dinner. But um, but thank you so much for making time for us. This has been such a gift to, to share an hour in conversation with you. And, and I'm sure for so many people as well, just there's something about your work that I noticed brings people back to the, the healthiest core of the human spiritual expression. And it is just such a gift. So thank you so much. Ah, This has been communion for me. Thank you so much. All of you, Sue and Dom and Peter, thank you so much.